guys doing today? Good? All right. You guys feel so far away. Thank you, Colin. <laughs> um, so Matt's gain is, is my gain. Um, he gets a baby and I get to preach, so whatever. Works for me. Um, before we get too far into this, I do have a few announcements for you. Um, first thing is in lieu of Bible study, the week of our home gatherings, the week of the 25th of this month, we are doing a Thanksgiving dinner. Um, if you, Most of you guys have all signed up for that. If you have not, um, please talk to Cassie Masarchik. Um, if you need her number, and let me know. Get you in touch with her, particularly because she's not here today. Um, but if you uh, would rather, you can just contact her through Facebook. Uh, the sign-up is through the church's Facebook account, um, so you can do that. Um, the next thing is that we have been doing food for babies for a while, and now we have a particular one that we're shooting for. Um, Matt and Sarah, as you know, had their um, third boy last night, or yesterday morning, rather, um, apparently very quickly, um, so whatever. Uh, I was in the hospital for two and a half, I was in the hospital. I was in a chair for two and a half days. Um, my wife was in the hospital for two and a half days to get Adeline. So two and a half hours, whatever. Um, you can sign up for that at uh, Take Them a Meal. It's the same same website we've been using for all, for all of these. Um, and the name you just put in there is McBee, and the password is in your bulletin. Um, if you have any questions, talk to my wife. She'll take She's taking care of that and setting this one up. Uh, we'll have another one next month, so just be ready for that um, as Olivia is getting closer. Uh, every day to that. The last announcement is um, in January we're going to be doing a biblical stewardship class. Uh, some of you guys heard about this in home gatherings this past week. This is going to be different than our typical weekend seminar thing that we do. We're going to try to probably do this one over three or four Monday nights uh, across the month of January. So yes, it is taking up another evening for you. Um, however, uh, it would be nice to have everyone there uh, for all of them. It's not going to be the same thing each time it'll be we'll be progressing uh, through the class, so we'll be uh, you'll be able to sign up for that online shortly. Um, we just need to nail down the date before we have you guys sign up because uh, you probably won't sign up until you know when. So just be looking for that. We'll talk about that in home gatherings. If you have any more questions about that, particularly what we're going to be covering, uh, you can talk with me afterwards. Um, so got a text yesterday, and of course, just like what three years ago, I was planning on having to preach all month. Um, just so I, you never know. Um, so <laughs> I wasn't completely unaware uh, that this event could happen. Um, fortunately, it didn't happen on Sunday morning like last time. Uh, that was nice. I had Saturday to prepare, um, but I had to watch the Buckeyes game first, you know, priorities. Um, <laughs> so uh, I got a text yesterday and uh, asked, obviously, me to take the pulpit today. Um, we talked about what we wanted to um to preach about, and originally we had just decided that I would take missionary and we'd finish up our Rhythm and Identities uh, series, but Matt, and I can absolutely relate to this, as you study a passage, as you study um, for a sermon, it, it just, it sits in your heart and, and you want to be able to preach that, I mean, it's kind of a fire in the bones thing, uh, so Matt really wants to preach that message, um, so we're going to um, let him finish that series next week. Um, and good news is, too, he doesn't have to prepare <laughs> all week, so that'll give him some more time with his family. It'll be good. Um, and then instead of going into Luke today, because uh, I don't want to just kind of shake us back and forth, we're going to do something a little bit different today. Um, 
we're going to be talking about the resurrection. Uh, why are we talking about the resurrection? Easter is in like April or whatever. It's in the spring. And here we are getting ready to talk about Jesus being born and you want to kill him. Well, heads up, that's where we're going in Luke. So uh, it's going to come shortly anyways. Uh, but want to talk about resurrection for this reason. was searching through um, what to preach on yesterday. And I've got like four sermons kind of in the shoot at all times, uh, just so I can be ready. Um, and I've had them for a while, and I think they're good, otherwise I'd, I'd change them. Um, <laughs> but was was kind of looking over those yesterday, and it just really wasn't settling in my heart well. Um, so I spent some time just reading uh, in general, and um, looked back at 1 Corinthians. We did chapter 10 last week as part of our identity of worshiper. And I continued to read through... Um, First and Second Corinthians, and I, I settled on chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, open up to First Corinthians chapter 15. Now, in Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we don't see as much doctrine presented in that book, in that letter, and even in the second one as much as we do typically in most of Paul's letters. And it's not to say that there is none. There certainly is. Uh, we see a, a vast expositions, particularly on love in chapter 13, and spiritual gifts surrounding ver- chapters what, 10 through 14, um, particularly 12. Uh, you see a lot, of, a lot of, there's doctrine in there, but it's not as heavy-handed almost as you would see particularly in Romans. Um, or even in the Colossians, as you were, um, as we've we've gone through that, and you just saw that. Uh, but when you get to chapter 15, it's almost like a, a the letter turns on its head, and all of a sudden Paul just kind of nails down doctrine. And in this chapter is really the biggest exposition in Scripture that we have on the resurrection. Now it's certainly mentioned many other places, uh, but it's not as heavily uh, handled as it is here in chapter 15, anywhere else in Scripture. And so why why are we talking about resurrection? Well, I uh, have been taught, and I, I would affirm these things, that there are really primarily five doctrines, if you will, that every Christian needs to, to know. Um, every Christian needs to know because they are foundational to who and what we are. But we've been talking about identities, and the, the tag that we have with that is who we are. Well, yeah, we're family. And we've been talking about how we know that we're family, how we see it in Scripture. We talked about learners, worshipers, we're going to be missionaries. We can see all that in Scripture. Yes, I have an identity as that, but what about doctrine? Am I a, a resurrector as I am a learner? It's not quite like that. Um, this is going to be the foundation, really, that, that holds up our, our faith. As such, uh, those five would be probably these things. The inerrancy. Uh, an inspiration of Scripture would be one that is primary. If you don't have that, all the other ones fall. Another one would be the virgin birth. If God's not fully God and fully man, it starts to fall apart. Another one would be uh, this substitutionary atonement or a penal substitution model. You can look at that. Um, that would be another one. So when Christ took our place on the cross, it was a ransom for many. It's pretty important. Um, there are no other religions that talk about anything close to that. Uh, it's all earning. And then a fourth one would be the bodily resurrection of Christ, not just the resurrection of Christ, but a bodily resurrection. Uh, we'll talk about why that's important a little bit today. Uh, and then the fifth one would be the second coming. 
of Christ, when he inaugurates, I'm sorry, when he completes his kingdom. All five of those are absolutely vital. Without one, you don't have the rest. And yet, Rob Bell would come and tell us that if you could remove any brick from the wall of Christianity and the whole thing would not come tumbling down, it would be the virgin birth. No, that's pretty primary. <laughs> without that, without God being fully man and fully God, we don't have a representative as a human, and we certainly don't have a God who can actually handle the wrath of God on the cross in the substitution and the atonement. That brings everything down. So these five things are of that category. These are what we would call non-negotiables. They're first-tier doctrines. Um, there is no middle ground on them. There's no gray area within them. Uh, these are what we would say are our five primaries. Now, there are certainly other doctrines that are important, uh, but we're not going to say that ecclesiology, ecclesia, the church, ology, the study of, or doctrine of, the study of the church, doctrine of the church, that's not a, necessarily a first tier. Our salvation does not hinge on the structure of the church. Now, is it important? Yes, that's why we have denominations. That's why we have um, so many different looks, but that's certainly not a first tier thing. That is a brick you can remove. Not the church itself, but the structure of. Um, and it, the whole thing would not come crashing down. You'd be in error, but it would not come crashing down. So this, the resurrection of the dead, is absolutely a first-tier thing. Now, why are we talking about this one instead of any of those other five? Well, my idea is that we'll kind of walk through different pieces of these, but of those five, I think this one is going to be the one that particularly complements missionary really well. Um, I was looking over Matt's notes for that uh, for next week, and I think this one will fit really well and partner with that. But it's also going to be coming up in Luke. Uh, as Jesus is just getting ready to enter into Jerusalem, uh, we're getting ready to see the passion play uh, carried out. Not only that, as we step away for a break uh, in December and look at kind of our Christmas series and the birth of Christ, um, it seems a little, I don't know, macabre to look at a baby and think death. But we understand that Jesus was sent here to die. He, his entire mission was to take our place on the cross, to pay our debt. And I think for us to separate them, even by half a year, and only look at those two uh, is a grave injustice to the entire mission of what Christ was trying to do here on earth. So I think resurrection is going to fit well um, with what we have coming up, and, and this is kind of where God has led me. So let's look at our text uh, and begin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll be starting in verse 1. Because now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, then to the twelve. But then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. When he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, 
though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The first thing that we want you to see is going to be the assurance of Christ's resurrection. The assurance of Christ's resurrection. If we have the backdrop of 1 Corinthians being the church at Corinth, primarily the god or goddess, rather, Aphrodite being worshipped, the goddess of love, the pagan rituals happening in the main temple there. And there's certainly uh, a syncretism that begins to happen as the church of God begins to mix with the culture. And Paul is writing to a church that is struggling in their identity of who they are and what proper practice looks like. And we saw last week that they struggled majorly with idolatry, and Paul gives an enormous warning of the dangers of idolatry in chapter 10. But it all falls within a greater context of Christian freedom. What are we free to do? We are free in Christ. Does that mean we can do whatever we want? Does that mean we can worship God as we would worship Him? Does that mean we can participate in other uh, religions as well, as long as we also have ours? And I think he was very clear in how that's supposed to play out last week. So when we get to the resurrection of the dead, it, it, again, like I said, it, it's like he turns on his head. And it almost feels unrelated to what is going on. And what's interesting is if you look at the, the context of First Corinthians, particularly in 13 and 14, and you start to see how they're just being pulled away. Just being pulled away. And it's not a major division. It's not like there's a huge church split in Corinthians, like on one hand are, um, is one, one faction and one group, and on the other hand is another faction and group. But they, they are mixed. They're, they're a unified body. But there's just some stuff that's not right. There's some stuff that not just needs to be fixed because it just doesn't look right, but because it's an error, it's wrong. And there's potential danger for disaster down the road. And so when you enter in here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I would remind you, brothers. It's not a you have forgotten necessarily or you are completely wayward, but I want to remind you of something. And if it's a reminder, it's something that you already know, right? By nature, if I'm going to remind you of something, it is something that you already know. And so the Corinthians know this, and he's very explicit in that. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you already received. In fact, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. You see a little redundancy in there. Unless what? You believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. And so, talking about what is the gospel, this is something that I brought to you. It was of first importance to me that I give you what I was given. It's going to play in big time next week in our missionary discussion. But he says you're standing in it. You received it, you're standing in it, and you are being saved unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. So here is the gospel. If you want to know an early uh, creed, if you will, of the Apostles' Creed, this is it. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared then to the believers. Kind of like an early Apostles' Creed happening right here, as it's being developed amongst the Apostles. And so, He then goes on in verses 3 through 11 to kind of give just the testimony. So the testimony of Paul, specifically to the resurrection as he outlines early in chapter 
uh, or in verse 4 rather, is this, is threefold. The testimony of Paul is this. In verse 2, it's tradition. They believed the tradition. He gave it, and they received it. That is their tradition. That doesn't necessarily make that gospel, if you will, but the tradition that he gave them, they received. And what's interesting is he's saying any deviation from this gospel, which saved them and in which they now stand, puts them in danger of believing in vain. So why is that warning at the end of verse 2, unless you believed in vain? He's saying you're doing it right. You are doing faith right right now, and I want to remind you of that. Because if you do anything different, then you're no longer doing it right. It would be to the contrary. You'd be doing it wrong, and you would be believing in vain. We'll talk a little bit more about particularly what he's warning of there. The second thing, the second testimony he gives is that of tradition of the apostles. So this is the early form of the Apostles' Creed, that he appeared to Cephas. And he appeared to 500 brothers at once. He appears to James and then the rest of the apostles. And so there's, there's plenty of people who can corroborate the story of the resurrection. You see, there are people in the Corinthian church who are saying or, or doubting the resurrection as if it did not happen. And he's saying, no, 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 you believed it and you're doing it right. If you don't believe it, if you believe anything contrary, you're believing in vain. In fact, not only did you receive this, but all the people that you trust, all these people that you know, 500 witnesses, they all say that it happened. And so you have two testimonies. If you're in a court of law, you've got one guy get up and he says, yeah, we believe this and there's been change. I'm being saved. I know something happened. And then you have another guy get up and he says, yeah, there's 500 people that can vouch. We all saw him. The apostles are getting up there and they're saying, yeah, we saw him. We're going to talk about how they responded shortly. But then you have a third one. Paul himself gets up on the stand and gives this testimony of personal experience. Now, the word untimely born or ectroma in the Greek is speaking of something a little graphic. It, it means an abortion or a miscarriage or a premature birth. Uh, all that is to, is to push to the, this point is that it's a life unable to sustain itself. And Paul is saying, I was a life unable to sustain myself. Now, it's not just that he was dead, as we would see, that Paul was spiritually unformed. He's dead and he's, he's pardon my explicitness he's he's useless he, he, he is capable of nothing he cannot provide for himself it's not just that in a spiritual sense but it's also the timing of it so an abortion is before term a miscarriage is before term a premature birth is before term so it, it's as if he was born at the wrong time is what he's saying as well so paul is saying that he's he, he wasn't with the original 12 he wasn't called with the original group he was called after. If you remember, Paul's the last apostle to be called. And so he's saying not only that, but also I'm unfit later because I persecuted the church. You shouldn't even be able to call me an apostle. So Paul knows that he was forgiven of his sins. He knows that he's forgiven of the persecution on the church. He gets that. And he's not plagued with feelings of guilt over that, maybe some remorse, but he's not guilty anymore. He's been forgiven but he cannot forget that for which he has been forgiven. And it continually reminds him that by the grace of God, I am what I am. That he deserved God's forgiveness so little was a constant reminder of how graciously his grace is given. So we are not to sit in guilt of our sins 
any longer, but we can't forget what they were. Remembering what we did and understanding then the greatness of God's grace will drive us to understand the depths of our need for Him. And so while I, I don't want people, uh, and I, I've had a struggle with this a lot with youth, is they want to sit in their sin forever. Unworthy, 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 unworthy. You are unworthy, but now you have been claimed by the King, and you are worthy not just of salvation because of Christ's work, but you are now an adopted son or daughter of the King. That changes things. But what good is it to forget where you came from and then feel like all of a sudden you deserve it? If you remember that you came from the streets and were helpless, and now you sit in the palace, you're going to appreciate the king much, much more. So Paul is saying, I was born not at the right time, but despite that, despite my sin of persecuting the church, despite me not being able to travel with Jesus like all the other apostles did, despite all of that, I am what I am by the grace of God. And so Paul continues then and gives them assurance of their faith. So you have believed. So the Corinthians are holding fast to what Paul had preached. The fact that they were doing that was the result of and an evidence of their genuine salvation. The fact that they are holding to the message preached is an evidence that they are, in fact, saved. It is genuine, just as their salvation and new life were an evidence of the power of Christ's resurrection. So what Paul is getting ready to do, and he's just, he's a phenomenal writer. There's so much more in here in, in a Greek structure uh, of the way that Paul sets up just an expert argument. And I don't want to delve into all that right now because I need like charts and graphs and pointing and stuff. Uh, and it wouldn't be good. <laughs> It'd probably lose you and me. Um, he's just, he's really good at this. So he's setting up an argument now of, of proving the resurrection, Okay. So we're going to be kind of treading through some of that. And so what he's saying is that you are saved. I don't want you to doubt your salvation. I've seen fruit in your life, Corinthians. I know you are saved because you've received the word that I gave you. And the fact that you are still doing it is evidence of your genuine salvation. In fact, it's not just evidence of your salvation, but all of this is an evidence of the resurrection. If all of this is legit, if all of this, they're, they're walking in the faith still, they're receiving salvation, if all of that is true, then the resurrection must be true. And so we see an early outline of Paul's argument for why the resurrection is indeed real. In Romans chapter 8, he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And in verse 30, we see why they are still walking in the faith. He says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And so we know that if they are walking in salvation, and they remain in it, then they are going to be, and they are currently, saved. It's not an issue of losing salvation. That's not what we're going for. It's only by God's power that we are saved, and only by his power that we are kept saved. Our salvation is kept by Christ holding us fast, not primarily by our holding fast to Him. Our holding on to Him is evidence that He is holding on to us. It may appear that we are holding on to God, that we are still walking in the faith, but in reality that is evidence that Jesus is holding on to 
Uh, so there is no necessarily question as to whether or not these people are indeed saved or not. In fact, he really only wants to amp that up so that he can use that in his argument for why we can be assured of the resurrection. It's an encouragement. It's an edification. It's something that we should be doing in everything that we do. But he uses that fact of saying, hey, look, you guys are believers. And because of that, this must be true. And he sets up his argument there. So let's um, objectively, and I don't want to give a huge apologetic as to why uh, the resurrection is a real historical fact. Um, There's certainly tons of resources that I can give you uh, concerning that. But just briefly, let's look at, at five facts. Um, that, that point to the truth of the resurrection. We know that the chief priests paid off the guards at Jesus' tomb to silence them. Okay, I understand here that we're not talking about Lord of the Rings, all right? Lord of the Rings is written by Tolkien. It is a fictional story. It's an awesome story, um, and, but it's fiction, all right? Frodo never ascended Mount Doom and fumbled the ring. <laughs> into the lava, all right? That, ne- that never happened, never, all right? Um, smog, never sat on a giant uh, pile of gold, even though you're going to see that next month, okay? Uh, I am, at least. Uh, never happened. And the danger is that for those of us that read fiction or even just, well, in, just in general in reading is that we look to particularly Israel's history and we see it as, well, it's a cool story. It's for my benefit, as we saw last week. No, it's not just an example. It's real. <laughs> the Israelites really were slaves in Egypt. The Hebrews really were slaves there. They really left the country. There is lots of Egyptian armor at the bottom of the Red Sea. These things happened. It's real. And so when we read this, Particularly the danger is when we're reading Jesus' narratives, which, I'm sorry, parables, those are fictional, is that we kind of step out and then bring everything to fiction. This is a true historical account that is corroborated by historical uh, writings more than any other event in the world. Short of our time in digital media, we've not been able to accurately record history as well as the Bible is substantiated. And so when we see that the chief priest paid off the guards at Jesus' tomb to silence them, that's me calling the, them up to the stand and saying, what happened at the tomb? Nothing. Then when they have accounts of many people claiming to see Jesus 40 days after his crucifixion, and then the claim ceased when he ascended, lots of people saw him. It's like, even this, okay, the, like, 30 seconds it takes for Air Force One to land. And you start hearing people on Facebook saying, dude, Air Force One's here. I saw it. And we believe it. It happened. We saw it. And when he leaves, we don't see it. It's the same. Matthew, then, in chapter 28, verse 17, says that some doubted the resurrection. That's a note of authenticity in the eyes of any historian. If you're concocting a tale, if I broke a lamp and I'm lying to my mother, I'm not going to say some doubted that I didn't do it. That's not going to help me in concocting my story. When a historian writes down facts that some people did not believe, that doesn't really help them in the moment. But as far as historians are concerned, you look back and you see that they say some people doubted. That's going to be a pretty big deal. 
Then we look at a couple more uh, very real things. We look at the disciples. They were transformed. Something happened to these guys. Something happened to these guys, all of them, to which they were ready to die in some of the most horrible ways imagined. All 12 guys just decided to hold on to the same line, and we're really going to get them good. All right? I know it's going to hurt, but it's worth it. Don't break. All right? Any of you. All 12. Something happened to these guys. Something changed. And then you look at, at our more later history, particularly in the early church, uh, not just Acts, but uh, even, even beyond that. A denial of the resurrection does not figure in any early anti-Christian apologetics. Okay, so those who are going after Christianity in the early church, none of them went after the resurrection. Jesus was clearly raised from the dead. The argument was simply about what that could possibly mean. So no one in the early church time uh, was fighting the resurrection. No one said it didn't happen. And if you're going after anything that can make Christianity fall apart, the guy who came back from the dead and paid for your sins is kind of a fundamental place. That's where I'd go after, but no one did. They couldn't. It was undoubted. Undoubted. And so the question wasn't, did it happen? It's, what do we do with this? What does it mean that a man came back from the dead? And so we can't forget this simple truth that there is a God. This God has chosen to become incarnate in the Jesus of Nazareth. And that this Jesus was raised from the dead. We can't forget that. And so often we use it just one Sunday a month. Understand that your job, your, your title does not ultimately define you. Husband does not define you. Father does not define you. Computer scientist does not define you. Construction worker, police officer, nurse does not define you. It does not define you. The resurrection of Christ is the fundamental fact of defining a Christian's life. The fact that we serve a risen Savior, you've heard us say, that is what defines you. So when we talk about identity, what defines us, we've been saying since the beginning, what God did requires something. Because God is this, it requires this. In light of the fact that this is true, that God is all that He is, something is required. And so for us, ultimately, what defines us is the fundamental fact of the resurrection of Christ. We have to start there And so then the questions for us as we look at this today is, does knowing the truth about Christ's resurrection make any difference in your life? The fact that a man, a flesh and blood man, died and came back from the dead three days later, walked out, does that change your life? How does knowing that the grave is not the end affect your life? The fact that when you die, it's not over, how does that affect your life? How are you living differently because you understand that most of your life is going to be lived on that side of the grave? That this time here is but a vapor, it is here for a moment and gone. How does that change the way you live here? How does that cause you to approach your decisions, your values, your priorities differently from how you would if you did not believe that? You see, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our own coming resurrection in Him are the fundamental facts in our lives as Christians. Do you live like you believe in the resurrection? That's the question. It happened. Do you live like you really believe it? Is the fact that I know that a man raised from the dead 
ascended on high? Do I know that after this life there's going to be more? Does that change the way I live? So the resurrection is many things. And one other thing that it is is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only basis for the Christian's life of unstoppable joy. Joy is not the unique preserve of Christianity. It's not that our religion and Christianity has a unique aspect of joy, but among all other religions in the world, it is the distinctive preserve of Christianity. That joy only comes because of our hope in completed, being completed in Christ. The fact that we have Christ who has completed everything allows us to have joy. We're not trying to follow the five-fold path well enough or in having the eight practices done correctly for long enough. We're not laboring under some burden. We're not even under the law anymore. We're under grace. The law certainly has a part to play, but we don't have to meet it because Christ did. That should bring joy to us, that we don't have to labor the rest of our life trying to achieve something. One person said that all other religions are the religions of do. Christianity is the religion of done. Resurrection means so many things. You can be assured that it happened. It, it happened. One of the biggest things that I've seen in apologetics that converts a atheist to Christianity is the evidence and understanding of the resurrection. When you come across the resurrection, it requires something because no one denies it. It hasn't been denied until our modern age of humanism and rational thinking. That there's some rational reason to explain for what happened there. And all that apparently is easier than saying a man rose from the dead. So, you can be assured that it happened. So let's explore what the resurrection means. It, it means all that we've said, our joy, all of that. But resurrection ensures our regeneration. Ensures our regeneration. So verse 12 it says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So here's the argument. But if there is no resurrection in the dead, so Paul is saying here, if it were true, let's explore what this means. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified or preached about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so in verses 13 through 19, the apostle demonstrates that the resurrection is not only possible, but essential to the faith by giving seven disastrous consequences. All right? There's four theological consequences and three personal ones that would result if there were no resurrection. And the first one is listed twice. But the first thing, in verse 13, Christ would not be risen. If there were no resurrection, we're not talking specifically about the resurrection of Jesus here. He's saying in general that resurrection is not possible. Now, 
Keep in mind, Jesus, while he was here himself in ministry, even before his death and then resurrection, raised three or four people from the dead. Lazarus is the most popular. Uh, and then the daughter of the later son. I don't know. There's a lady uh, in a city whose um, child, I don't know, I can't remember the gender, is being carried on the funeral mat above people's heads on the way to a funeral and burial. And Jesus has that person sit up, and they live again. In front of everybody, he just does these things. Lazarus comes walking out. So we've seen and can corroborate evidence of other resurrections. But people are saying, resurrection doesn't happen at all. People don't come back from the dead. Well, if that's true, then all of these must be true as well. Then Christ would not have risen in verse 13. In verse 14, preaching of the gospel would be meaningless. What I'm doing now would be meaningless. I'd be lying to you. Verse 14, also, faith in Christ would be worthless. Verse 15, all witnesses to and all preachers of the resurrection would be liars. I would be lying to you now. Verse 17, we see that all men would still be in their sins. These are the personal ones. So for, for us, we would still be in our sins as believers. In verse 18, the sixth one, all former believers would have eternally perished. All of those that have gone on before us are gone forever. In verse, or the seventh one in verse 19, Christians would be the most pitiable people on earth. You hear that terrible apologetic of just believe in Christ. If you're wrong when you die, no big deal. But if you're right, you get to go to heaven. Really? That's an authentic, genuine faith? No, in fact, most people would say that Christians seem to be under more law than most people. Right? We're the religion that doesn't get to have any fun, all that, right? That's not what Paul's going after. He's not saying, if you weren't a believer, then you could go do all the stuff you really want to do. Uh, that's not a good, good understanding of salvation. What he's saying is that if there were no resurrection, then all that we do now in devoting our time and our life to something is wasted because it will produce nothing. We could be devoting it to other things. So Paul sets up his example here, number 12 through 19, talking about what would happen if there were no resurrection. So let's, let's pretend what you're saying is true. There is no resurrection. This is what would happen. But in doing so, and having already set up at the beginning of the chapter, the fact that there has been fruit of salvation, the fact that uh, they are walking in the faith, that they are still persevering, the fact that that necessitates God holding them, that they even remain is proof of resurrection. In fact, these seven things that I just listed are not happening. So if they're not happening, then that argument must be wrong. By default, there must be resurrection because things are happening. If you can't explain why things are happening in people's lives, why people's lives are being changed, why the gospel is coming to bear on people, why it continues to explode and grow, then by default, the other must be true. There must be a resurrection. Because if it wasn't this, then it can't be anything else. 
There has to be a resurrection. In fact, we can see more examples of it. Because the resurrection ensures our regeneration, the point that we're discussing now, we've seen the truth of regeneration. Now, the doctrine of regeneration is simply this. When we are born as men, people, humans, we're dead. So Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses, right? And what can dead people do? They can be dead. That's it. They are capable of doing nothing. So when Christ brought you to life, that is our regeneration. When a dead thing is regenerated, it is given life again. So we once were alive, but we died in sin. And now we have been regenerated or brought to life in Christ. That is the doctrine of regeneration. And so we see evidence of that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the new birth or being born again. That becomes incredibly important later when we start talking about justification. But this is the new birth. This is being born again. Regeneration is that. It's probably what you've heard before. And so the resurrection is fundamental to regeneration even happening, like 1 Peter says. He's caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection ensures our regeneration. Without the resurrection, we cannot be regenerated. And without regeneration, there is no salvation or walk with Christ to give evidence as to what has already happened. So then there would be no resurrection. You see his argument? So Paul connects the resurrection of Christ with the spiritual power at work within us when he prays that the Ephesians might know. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, he prays that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power at work in us now. Paul understands that the resurrection is not just an event. It's not just a catalyst for change. It's not something that just happened that allows us to now be Christians. It has so much more than that. With the resurrection comes the power to live a godly life. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that now works within us. That's huge. That is, that is absolutely huge. And so Paul further sees uh, us as raised in Christ when he says this in Romans chapter 6. He says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk then in newness of life. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are no longer dead. We have been regenerated. And this new resurrection power in us includes power to gain more and more victory over remaining sin in our lives. Sin will have no dominion over you. Even though we will never be perfect in this life, it no longer has power because we are no longer dead. We are alive and able to live in Christ. Resurrection ensures our regeneration. But the next step is that the resurrection ensures our justification. 
Resurrection ensures our justification. In verse 20, he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. The resurrection ensures our justification. So just speaking through the passage, as we did with the last one first, let's talk about what first fruits is. In verse 20, he says that Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the first fruits is this. When you think of the harvest, and we just came out of, I guess we're still in a weird fall. Um, they already harvested at the end of the summer. The first fruits were um, kind of like, not like a sample, but um, a first collection of the crop, and that would be then evidence as to what the rest of the crop would be like, right? Uh, so if you gather, I don't know, five rows of corn, it's going to be similar to all the other rows of corn, right? That's the first fruits of the harvest. Now, the full harvest, when we're talking about this time, we're not allowed to be made until the first fruits were offered to God. And so in his death and his, his resurrection, Christ makes an offering of himself to the Father on our behalf. So if we're talking about our justification, our resurrection, our redemption cannot be made, the full harvest cannot be made until the first fruits are offered. And so Christ is a first fruits of the resurrection. But he's, we see first fruits a lot in Scripture. You look in James and it says that he's the first fruits of the new kingdom. Uh, I think we talked about this in Learner maybe. Um, when in our gospel and kingdom, we were talking about how kingdom has come now. Jesus says, behold, the kingdom is upon you. It means new creation is coming now. This is the first fruits. And so in James, it says that we are the first fruits to the world to understand what is to come. In that sense, we are an example. We are the first five rows of corn showing what the entire field looks like to a lost and dying world. So you have someone who lives in Antarctica, shows up in Ohio, has no clue what corn is. No idea. Never seen a farm, never seen a field. And we show him these five rows. And from that, he's able to understand what the entire field looks like. That's what we are to the world. So first fruits is a big, big theme with Paul um, and, and even the other apostles. So Christ's resurrection, particularly if we get back to the, the idea of first fruits and the resurrection, it could not have been in isolation of ours. It can't just be the first five rows and that's all. The rest doesn't happen his resurrection is not in isolation his resurrection requires our resurrection because his resurrection was part of the larger resurrection of god's redeemed now if god's plan was for just christ to be resurrected that'd be fine but that's not been the intention that's not been the plan that's not been what we've been told in christ or god does not change if he has a plan he executes it he does what he wants and so if Christ is to be the first fruits, then there must be a harvest of some sort. So the fact that he was raised, and we know that he's the first fruits, tells us that our resurrection must happen as well. So Christ is the first to be raised and to not die again. While he had raised other people in his ministry, Lazarus, Lazarus and those others, they grew old and died. And they stayed dead. Christ is the first to be raised and not die again. And so when we were talking about kind of the five doctrines, this is where the necessity of the virgin birth falls in. 
Christ had to live, die, and be raised as a man so that he would be the first fruits of all other men who would be raised to glory. See, the first fruits and the harvest are from the same crop. Those five rows are from the same field. If he's not a man, he's not of the same field. If Christ was not a man when he was raised, then all other men are not going to be part of that same harvest. Now again, linking us together in this idea of kingdom, in this idea of, God, of Jesus being fully man and fully God, we look at uh, another passage. It says, well, if we look back at our text, it says in verse 21, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So by one man, as Romans 5 would say, through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. We've seen that theme over and over again. We've seen it all through gospel and kingdom. Jesus is the new Adam. He is the new head of the new race. And so by one man came death, Adam. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, Jesus. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we have to handle something in the text here. The word all shows up twice in the same verse. But those alls are not necessarily equal. It is true in the literal sense that all men will die in Adam. That's why we need regeneration. Okay, But it is not true in a literal sense that all will be made alive in Christ. Uh, when you are talking about this, we cannot just take it as it says without looking at what the rest of the Scripture says. Uh, there's a danger. This is where the Church of Christ has issues with baptism. It was because one verse says that baptism is part of salvation. They say that that makes it necessary. Without a systematic approach to the entire whole, we cannot properly exegete one passage. And so when we look at what does the second all mean, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, does that jive with our understanding of the doctrine of hell? That would mean no one would go to hell. There's a universal atonement. That's not what Scripture teaches. Uh, Rob Bell also happens to be a universalist. We, we cannot hold to a universalist atonement. When we have a doctrine of hell and reprobation, understanding that some men are elect and will become, uh, will be finished by God as we saw earlier, but also know that some will be going to hell. As we know that there are two roads. One is wide, and many are on it, and it leads to destruction. And one is narrow, and it leads to eternal life. We know that there is a parting. We know that the sheep will be separated from the goats. So we cannot hold to a universalist approach. So all must mean something different. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Who is all? All is those who belong to the field. Those who belong to the field, to the harvest, will be made alive. Not one single ear of corn in that field is not going to make it on the truck. But not all the corn in the world is in that field. Does that make sense? And so the, the technical term for this is going to be um, a limited atonement and an effective calling. Uh, we understand that Christ died for the sins of those who would be regenerated. So all are not necessarily equal. In verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his second coming, those who belong to Christ. So there is an order, a proper order, to the resurrection and 
this chapter as long a, as well as uh, reno, mm. renovation Re- revelation we don't have our own chapter in the bible revelation um kind of lay out a little bit more of the order for us but let's continue looking at uh, justification particularly in romans chapter 4 verse 24 um it speaking of righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised uh, sorry let me start over. i didn't have time to stew on this message all week so this is like seven hours yesterday all coming at once all right <laughs> Um, in chapter 4 of Romans, uh, verse 24, it, speaking of righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our, our justification. So Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. There's a direct cause and effect between the resurrection and justification being happened. So in the death of Christ... He pays for our sins. And the raising up of Christ, it completes our justification. The justification is not simply limited to the payment of sins. It's not simply limited to a ransom. So even as, Je- as Jesus' death prevents our death, the fact that he died for us, that substitutionary atonement, prevents our eternal death, so his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. So, get a little existential here i guess if christ didn't raise from the dead what does that mean if christ didn't raise from the dead he still died and paid for our sins so we're no longer guilty of sin but we're not guaranteed a life with him in glory there's also a potential danger that if christ didn't raise from the dead then our payment for sin was not necessarily fully made if christ is a man and also God was not able to come back, there, there's an issue there for us. And we, we know in Scripture, just as a aside, that the resurrection was both the working of God the Father and Jesus. It lends to be mostly God the Father, but Jesus says that he has the authority to lay down his life and take it back up again. And so that working in resurrection, uh, it, it, it ensures our justification in more than just a, a paid-for-sin sense. Okay? So let's, let's explore that a little bit more. As resurrection is the completion of the crucifixion, of that entire passion play, by Jesus fully and finally secures our justification. Uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem explains in Systematic Theology, so there's a section on resurrection. He s- explains it this way. When Christ was raised from the dead, it was God's declaration of approval of Christ's work of redemption. So when Christ was raised from the dead, it was God's declaration of approval of the work on the cross. Because Christ humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2.8, God has highly exalted him. God has highly exalted Christ, in Philippians 2.9. By raising Christ from the dead, God the Father was in effect saying that he approved of Christ's work of suffering and dying for our sins, that his work was completed, and that Christ no longer had any need to remain dead. There was no penalty left to pay for sin, no more wrath of God to bear, no more guilt or liability to punishment. All had been completely paid for, and no guilt remained. In the resurrection, God was saying to Christ, listen to this, I approve of what you have done, and you find favor in my sight. So, the resurrection ensures our justification in the sense that Christ's work was complete. And God gave us a very visual representation of that approval. 
So just as for us, the Holy Spirit is a seal of salvation, the resurrection, if you will, is a seal or an approval of Christ's work on the cross. But it's, it's even more than that. And I've struggled today in putting such a large doctrine into one package. I really want to focus on regeneration and justification. But this is a piece of justification that we can't miss, is that justification involves a relationship. You see, the danger in most of our examples of justification is that somebody comes to the bank and pays off my credit card so that I no longer owe the amount, and that's it. But what happens after he pays that? I want to take that guy to dinner. I mean, I want to pay for something so much maybe smaller because I can't afford it because he paid such a big debt for me. There's a relationship involved in this justification. And so, of course, if we're going to be united with Christ, then Christ must be raised from the dead. If we're supposed to be united with Christ, how are we going to do that when he's still dead? He has to be resurrected. And so if there is justification, there must be resurrection. His argument continues. It's a positive declaration that then restores us to fellowship with a holy God. And that positive declaration of righteousness comes on the basis of our union with the living Christ. If we're going to be united with Christ, he must be alive again. Robert Haldane, a commentator on Romans, says this, He was raised that he might enter the holy place, not made with hands, and present his own blood, that we might be righteous through his death for us. As the death of Christ, according to the determinate counsel of a holy and righteous God, was a demonstration of the guilt of his people, so his resurrection was their acquittal from every charge. Spurgeon says it this way, The dying Christ has purchased for us our justification. We know that. But the risen Christ will see that we get it. The risen Christ has come to bring it to us, and herein we rest. That is justification. That is a relationship in our justified king. So resurrection ensures our regeneration. It ensures our justification. And it also ensures his reign. Resurrection ensures his reign. Verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, in English, we don't really repeat things as much as he does. All right? We use a lot of pronouns, which my wife gets on me about. But understand this text. What he's saying is that at the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, he, being Jesus, delivers it to God the Father. After he, Jesus, having destroyed every rule and every authority and every power, That's our conquering king. That is the Messiah, not what the Jews thought. That is our Messiah. Verse 25, For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So then Jesus delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Okay, So we have Paul giving us a little Trinitarian structure here. And then verse 27, it says this, For God, Father, has put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. What he's saying there 
is that God puts everything under Jesus' feet, but he's not placing himself because he has the authority to put it under somebody's feet that must mean that he cannot be made subject. Example, President Obama is our leader of our military. If he puts all authority under a a four-star general, is President Obama, our commander-in-chief, underneath of that general? No, because he has the authority to do the placing. And so what Paul's saying is that certainly God the Father does not place himself in subjection under Jesus because he's the one that has the authority to place those things in the first place. Does that make sense? So Jesus always is subject to God the Father. It's Trinitarian structure. He goes on to say that when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, there's an explicit affirmation of verse 27, all things, including himself, are subjected to God the Father, so that God the Father may be all in all. And Ephesians chapter 1 says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? We read this earlier. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so now we have a perfect picture of Christ's reign. When he accomplishes everything and he has defeated every power and authority, he delivers it unto God and God puts it under his feet. And then we find in Ephesians that him who has everything under his feet, the name that is far and above all the other things that he's conquered, is given to the church. The fullness of it is in the church. Him who is all in all. The church has Jesus. The church has everything that we need because of the resurrection. So what do we do with this? As we close out today, let's look at some ethical significances of the resurrection. So what do we do? What's the application of the the resurrection? I hope you have a better understanding of the doctrine itself, particularly uh, what it accomplishes, what it is, why it's necessary. Uh, what it affects primarily, regeneration and justification. I hope you understand that justification is more than just our sins being paid, but it's a relationship that then continues, as we would say, on to sanctification. So the three stages of salvation on the short side would be justification, sanctification, and glorification. I know that God does all of that, and justification is a relationship that continues on through all three. But what do we do here on this earth? What do we do while we wait for, for God to be Uh, for Jesus to to defeat every power? What do we do while we wait for him to come for a second time so that we may be resurrected, whether here in the flesh now or from the dead? What do we do? We look on in verse um, 50, so skip down a little bit farther. In chapter 15, he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. In this case, alls are, uh, are literal. 
verse 52, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on an immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, a subset to the doctrine of re- uh, resurrection is going to be, what does our resurrection body look like? How will we be raised? All that stuff. We're not going to spend much time on that. That's in that space that we skipped. You can read through that if you want to. Um, I don't think I need to explain much of 50 through 56, really talking about the transition between flesh to spirit. But let's look at verse 58, the giant therefore at the bottom of this chapter. Therefore, so because of everything that I just said, what do we do? Be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And reflect back to verse 1 and 2, lest your faith be in vain. We know that it's not because we labor in the Lord. And so there's three significances for us. The first one is that you should continue steadfastly in the Lord's work. Continue steadfastly in the Lord's work. So it's because Christ was raised from the dead, and we too shall be raised from the dead, that we should continue steadfastly in the Lord's work. Because Christ was raised, and we will, he was the first fruits and we are the harvest, we should continue in the Lord's work. This is because everything that we do to bring people into the kingdom and build them up will indeed have eternal significance. Because we shall all be raised on the day when Christ returns and we shall live with him forever. It's going to happen. Does it change the way you live? The second one, focus on our future heavenly reward as our goal. Focus on our future heavenly reward as our goal. As our goal. So Paul encourages us when we think about the resurrection, not just Easter. Every day we serve a resurrected Lord. When we think about the resurrection, focus on our future heavenly reward as our goal. In Colossians chapter 3, you heard this earlier. It says, if then, if, a conditional statement, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Because of the resurrection, don't think about the things on earth. Focus on your future heavenly reward. Third, stop yielding to sin. Stop yielding to sin. Third ethical application of the resurrection is the obligation to stop yielding to sin in our lives. So when Paul says in Romans chapter 6, and this is a fantastic chapter to read. I had this memorized at one point uh, on fighting sin. He says, we are to consider ourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
by virtue of the resurrection of Christ and his resurrection power within us. Because he raised from the dead and because that power is in us, we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. He then goes on immediately to say, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Do not yield your members to sin. There's no reason to sin anymore when we have the power of God in our life. The fact that we have this new resurrection power over the domination of sin in our lives is used by Paul as a reason to exhort us not to sin anymore. Go and sin no more. And so we can't forget this truth of the resurrection. There is a God. This God has chosen to become incarnate in the person of Christ Jesus of Nazareth. And that this Jesus was raised from the dead. Understand again, your job does not define who you are. The resurrection of Christ is the fundamental fact of the Christian life. So does knowing the truth about Christ's resurrection make any difference in your life? How does knowing that the grave is not the end affect your life? How are you living differently because you understand that most of your life is going to be lived on that side of the grave? How does that cause you to approach your decisions, your values, and your priorities differently from how you would if you did not believe that? The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our own coming resurrection in him are the fundamental facts of a life of a Christian. Do you live like you believe in the resurrection? I'm going to pray and we'll sing one more song and then you'll be dismissed for today. I am going to publicly ask you all to please stick around for teardown. We are vastly undermanned today. Um, so let's pray again. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are. I would thank you so much for what you've done. Yeah, because of who you are and what you have done, we can respond to you and worship. And Father, the resurrection is not some event in history. But Father, it is a fundamental shift in the course of history. Not just that a man lived once again, but then died. But Father, a man lived once again and will never die again. And Father, because of your resurrection, we daily can understand and have perspective over what this life looks like. We have the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead in our life, working out our salvation. Father, let us cling to these facts, just as the Corinthians were faithful in remembering the message that was given to them. Father, let us remain in that, lest our faith not be in vain. Father, we love you and we thank you for what you've done. We pray all this in Jesus' name.